0: The bro show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel and Bill Tate. Dr. Mack, welcome back to the studio.
1: Thanks, Bill. How are you going?
0: Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Episode two in the third season. That's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. We're we're back in 2021 during lockdown, so
0: yeah, getting busy, rolling up our sleeves. So just a reminder, we we previewed a little bit of the season uh, in the first episode, but we're starting off with a, I guess like a triptych of episodes around, focused around uh, endurance medicine, specifically wilderness stuff, but but really focused on. Ah, uh, the endurance side um, of of um, medicine and and performance, and and this is a really exciting episode with a guest today.
1: It is, it is. We've got the wonderful Steph Gaskell um, from Monash University. So the trio of episodes we're doing early in this this new series is about endurance medicine, um, specifically trail running. But we're trying to, you know tie together the themes of sports science, sports medicine and athlete management. So I think this is a perfect one because it's the intersection of sort of self-management in you know a very remote place, but also very technical and good sports science. And we've got, we're really lucky to have Steph Gaskell, who's pretty much an expert in this area, particularly working with some of our most um, elite ultra trail runners, but also people that just need to understand their bodies and the way they're going to manage their nutrition, hydration in wild events. Mm. Um, So Steph is a a dietitian um, and she is known as Nutrition Strategies on Instagram and that's her, her business name. She works as a clinical dietitian with athletes. She also is a researcher at Monash University in Melbourne. And her area of expertise is, is in gut um, health and exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. Um, she's big on nutrition, hydration, and endurance events. And she actually hosts one of my favorite podcasts called The Long Munch with um, Alan McCubbin. So they've got a really great series, and we very much recommend you go out and check out The Long Munch, which is endurance um, nutrition for cyclists, runners, and triathletes, which is
0: fantastic. Mm. So, welcome, Steph. Big intro. Awesome, yeah,
2: very big <laughs> intro. Thank you. Um, that's that's lovely, and thank you for the for the shout out. Um, thanks for having me on.
0: That's brilliant. So, brilliant to have you. we've got a bit to cover tonight, which is which is pretty pretty. Uh, well, it's it's going going to go in depth into, I guess, some of the nutrition strategies and some of the observations and things that that might come out and play out in a well, specifically from this instance an ultra endurance wilderness kind of um, activity, I'm going to hand over to the doc uh, to run this one because this is uh, this is very much in her domain. You guys have actually collaborated on a podcast on the Long Munch recently as well, so listeners can jump over there. Which episode number was it, Steph? Do you remember?
2: Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. oh, <laughs> I don't remember bloody episode numbers. Alan, um, Alan's gone with that one. Uh, I think it's 18. 18? Yeah. 18? The dot, 18. The dot knows. She's- I can tell you it's 18a.
0: Yes, is uh, that's true? Yes, the yeah. Th- I heard three A was was quoted in um in eighteen I I don't think stage. I
2: was the
1: expert though. Alan was the expert, so I was B. I was like on the ground oh, experience. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we were talking I'm about buggered so, so don't ask me
2: about
1: episodes. <laughs> it's complicated. They have A's and B's and stuff. We just do series one year apart.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, straight up.
1: <laughs> um. Now. Now, Steph, you're born and bred in Adelaide. Tell us a little bit about your sporting background way back when because you've obviously got into running in a big way.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, So basically you're born in the country, so a little town called Wakery in South Australia. Uh, And I I guess in living in a small town, there's not much to do. We had, I think, one stoplight at the time. Uh, So we... (laughs) We pretty much just did all sports, you know, everything from river sports, water skiing, basketball, netball, um, nine side stuff, little athletics, horse riding, um, just a real big mix. Um, so, yeah, it was, I guess from there, uh, I actually used to hate running. Uh, and I used to really think of myself as a shot putter and a discus thrower. Wow. <laughs> so at little Athletics, when they'd come and search for me for running, I'd have myself locked in the car and my <laughs> sister would have to drag me out. And, um, and, yeah, she just kind of just would always encourage me because she's, I guess, that older sister that always wants her sibling, you know, to do just as well as her. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, got stuck into cross-country running and, and then moved up to Adelaide for uni, and then um, I just wanted to make with, I guess, different running groups. And I think for them, the the shortest distance they were doing at the time was 15k. So it just kind of stepped up, stepped up from there. Um, and from, I guess, from from running the 15k's and so in Adelaide, I did a marathon, uh, and then. Then went over, overseas and then that's where I kind of got the love more for the ultra, ultra trail running. So I spent a bit of time in, um, in Kenya, in Itton, at a um, oh, wow. Lawn and gets marathon runner. So I had a good two months over there and I just really wanted to go over there just to see the kind of the, the running they did and the training and um, awesome. just, yeah, see what it was all about.
1: What do they do in terms of nutrition? I'm going to sidetrack.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so they they have a lot of ugali, which is like a, a corn maize. So mm. that's their main sort of staple for the carbohydrate. Uh, and they typically will have that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, breakfast, it's they would just eat it plain. So it's just like I guess yeah, right. having plain rice or plain polenta. Like it's it's, but that's what they've been used to. Uh, and then for lunch and for dinner they'll add on things like legumes, lentils or um, beef, you know, um, so, so a bit of meat in there. And then a lot, a lot of chai tea. But yeah. if you think of the chai tea, if you think of like a, a cup of tea, that cup of tea could have the equivalent of 10 teaspoons of sugar. Yeah. Like your teeth sting. <laughs> um, yeah, right. So, Perfect sports again, drink. You can see how they get the carbohydrate um, the carbohydrate in there. But it was a really great experience, and I had a bit of a play around in the kitchen because they, weren't, they didn't have a lot of athletes there at the time, so I actually found a lot of things. They didn't actually know what it was, and then I taught them how to kind of use those utensils. And um, I actually had Lorna come in one day and she said, Steph, I know you're meant to be leaving tomorrow, but can you just stay for another two weeks? Um, so just had a fantastic, fantastic time there.
0: That's amazing. So on your running, Steph, um, you you obviously have done uh, one, at least one marathon. How many marathons have you done?
2: <laughs> yeah, um, in races I didn't used to race all, all that much, so I've only really done two Two actual marathons, so one in Adelaide and one in um, Melbourne. Yeah. I, I started Gold Coast, but I had a um, chest infection, so that kind of didn't didn't fare too well.
0: And you're comfortably under the three hours in Melbourne.
2: Mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's <laughs> comfortable, oh, but. Um, <laughs> Bill does a lot I of comfortable marathons, number. don't you, Bill? <laughs>
0: oh, I know, I've never even done a comfortable 5K. You know my attitude to running. It's a-
1: Bill reckons if you start your day with a run, it's only going to get better from there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen you on social media going for a run,
0: though. Oh, yeah, I run like three or four mornings a week. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we have very different attitudes to to what we get out of the run.
1: <laughs> anyway, back to you. I, I think what I'd like to know is that you've done actually quite a lot of um, ultra marathons and even some overseas. Um, and I guess you've probably – because you – have done a lot of study as you're going along. You you would understand mm-hmm. some of the stuff that your body's going through and what it's what it's needing and what it's turning through. And tell me about that. So you've won Tarawera, mm-hmm. which is the 60k trail race in, in New Zealand, and obviously to do that you've got to get your fueling right. How did you get interested in this topic?
2: Yeah, in in the nutrition mm-hmm. side of it. Yeah, um, I think I was. I guess when I was looking at doing my first trail race, it was actually Yu Yang, so a 50K trail race in, in Victoria. Um, and I actually was um, perhaps at the time sort of finished studying um, dietetics and was um, getting into the sports dietetics area. And so I, I contacted Louise Burke, who's kind of the mother of sports nutrition in Australia, and it was someone I had Admired since I started studying nutrition, uh, and I I, I always like to kind of learn in a lot of you know a lot of areas and, and seek the who I think are the best people. Um, so yeah, I got Louise and and some of the team at the ABS actually helped me with my nutrition, um, and so yeah, I was kind of just corresponding with them for Yu Yangs, and. Um and then just putting that in place in training and then and then in the race and we actually got like at that time there was a lot of talk about, you know, us being able to extend our carbohydrate intake from beyond sixty grams an hour to potentially ninety. Wow. Um so I actually in that race um got in ninety grams of carbs an hour. Wow. Um and that that was actually like just thinking of all the trail races I've done, that race I can say is where I pushed myself the hardest, but I felt so good throughout and I had extra gears. Um, and I still we've still got the PB for that one. So that's probably my most memorable oh, kind of trail that. race because I felt that the, the preparation and the nutrition just w- went perfectly.
1: Yeah. Well, that's actually often how it goes, isn't it? When you you know how good it can be, you kind of want to help other people kind of replicate that and not walk Mm -hmm. into mistakes of falling far short of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super cool. And would that be your
2: favourite race? Not that like I think I I enjoyed it. Um it wasn't my favorite because we got steered the wrong way, so we had to we <laughs> had to run extra. The markers were all gone and then also the aid station, they bug it up. But um it, it it was an entertaining race. Um my my favorite would probably be it's a tough one, but I'd probably say Trans Rockies, which was um a six day um Uh, five or six day stage race in in the US so kind of like started in Boulder went through Bale Leadville um had a lot of elevation gain um but yeah that was that was a stage race and then my favorite one in Australia would probably right now have to be UTA which people might previously know as North Face but that's run in the Blue Mountains yeah that's a
1: 100k race over one day isn't it
2: yeah, so that's 100. Trans Rockies was a total of about 200 that wow. split, into, split into stages.
1: Actually, on the last yeah. podcast, we did a bit of an introduction to some multi-day racing that's happened in Australia this year um, at the Hut to Hutt in Mount Buller. Um, and oh, one yeah. of the things was how people back up from day one to day two. So with your Trans Rockies, did you have um, a support team? So could did you get some assistance for your overnight recovery?
2: Uh, no. So, um, I mean, I guess what, how that was set up, it was, you run point to point, um, they set up tents and they have a really big gourmet tent and then they have aid stations at the end. Um, yeah, during the actual, uh, race, um, from my memory, there probably were some, um, yeah, basic aid stations in some, but in, in others there wouldn't because it might have been 20Ks running up a mountain um, oh. and you're fine anyway. So you, a lot of the – for the majority of that race, I carried, carried that nutrition myself yeah, well. with awesome. your hydration bag. Awesome. So yeah, um,
1: that's a brilliant sort of personal experience, and I'm sure a lot of athletes that you work with benefit from understanding not just the nutrition and the science behind it, but also the logistics of how you do the preparation and how you carry your things and how you might um, pr- train for these kind of events. So moving into more about you know your career. Um, Talk about sort of like your day-to-day clinical work and what are the kind of athletes who come to you and say, Steph, can you help me with my uh, my nutrition? Because um, I know, you know, you do a lot of work at the Monash University in the in the clinical exercise laboratory, which is the Be Active, Eat and Sleep, the base lab um, or sleep and eat, sorry, BASE. <laughs> and so you do a lot of work working out the science behind it. But what do people come to you asking about?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess kind of a variety. So initially when, when I started, my area of interest was was gastrointestinal nutrition. Um, and then I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to combine that. Like I always loved sports nutrition, but for me, for starting out as an income earner, I guess for myself, I kind of needed to focus more on the gastrointestinal side um, in Adelaide at least. Um, and so I've been able to really combine the two now. Um, so athletes I tend to see typically, I guess, in my specialty area is um, a large majority now will be ultra, ultra athletes, typically um, runners or, or cyclists or adventure type um, people. Um, and they'll see me a lot of the time for gut symptoms, Um and that could be because um, you know, gut symptoms are ending their race or they're severely um reducing their work output. Um and and like I have people coming to me where it's like this is my last chance, like it's either this or I'm giving it up and I just Mm. I don't want to give it up. Um uh and um and then other times it can be training nutrition so you know people maybe just finding that they're just constantly tired um it could be injury based you know constant or well, long term stress fractures or injuries is there mm. something that that's possibly happening there um, maybe, you know, energy availability concerns and then, and then race day nutrition, like in ultra endurance events, um, there's a real science behind planning out the nutrition to those. And so I'll always, you know, find out in a lot of detail, well, what's that particular event that person's doing Yeah, and then, yeah, kind of tuning into that. So, so a big, a big range really, um,
0: yeah, it's a bit of yeah. everything. So, you know, people that are that have got things from a competitive sense, where they've they've had issues during competition, issues during training, and then more chronic issues. I suppose we, we talked about the energy availability stuff, which is obviously a really big thing. It, it's probably still, you know, it's only just emerging. So much of that as to how much of a potential issue that is for a lot of endurance athletes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mm. definitely. And, and, you know, ultra runners are are very good at getting injured, but um, obviously the the event they do is quite stressful on the body. Um, But I think what you said about understanding the goal of the person that you're – the athlete that you're treating, um, certainly what we've reflected on in covering these events is every event's different and every event has very different nutritional needs and each athlete that tackles the event has very sort of individual characteristics as well some people are very good at eating on the run and other people are not very good at eating on the run or or fueling it. and some people suddenly get behind on their on their hydration and vomiting is a big problem or, or diarrhea is a big problem on the run so you'll get all sorts of different athletes that come to you and say this is my history and this is what I've had trouble with and can you help and,
0: me and is it like that Steph is is it that you get a lot of people that kind of understand their patterns or is it I mean, I imagine that there's also those that just to have a shock in, in one event where it all goes wrong for them and they go, oh, what, what happened? You know, I completely I blew or I bombed somewhere, somewhere along the lines. Is it, is it a bit of a mix of those those sort of experiences?
2: Yeah, definitely can be a mix. It can be um, where people kind of try and nut it out themselves um, yeah. or, you know, just think maybe it's just a one-off and and then try for the next race but it happens again um it, it can be where yeah maybe they've they've spent all their time in in their in their training and they actually didn't really think too much about their nutrition which is super common yeah. um super frustrating um but yeah then then they can come and see us um but yeah then we also have you know like in, at Monash, at least, well, uh, we had an athlete flyover, a professional athlete flyover from, from Spain. Um, and he's, he just tried a number of different uh, strategies, but a lot of the strategies weren't kind of – it was a lot of a trial and error approach. Um and I'm now fortunate enough to be at base where we can actually get a lot more objective data. Mm. Um, and in the area that I work in, particularly in gut symptoms in endurance exercise, um, just as as you said um, before, there's so much individual variation, and and doing the trial and error approach, it can just it can be nasty. Um, mm. It's it's a lot of guesswork, and if you can. Refine it and narrow it down, and and have data that can perhaps tell you more of an all-rounded story. Mm. Um, then, yeah, it, it makes for a better outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I think we we're talking earlier. You know, um, there's a, I I think it was Confucius said. You know, experience is the bitterest way to learn. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's great if you if that's the only thing you can take from it. But ideally, you get ahead of the curve by thinking about things. So. If I was you know I, I was a relatively inexperienced um, endurance runner moving into the ultra endurance space or the more extreme endurance space, what are the, what are the typical things or um, I guess questions that I might want to start thinking about asking and, and then potentially coming to see somebody like you? what are the what are the um, I guess the first signs that I'm not you know I'm, I'm going beyond what I'm currently capable of supporting. With my current regime, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I'd tackle um, your training. Like, yeah. So I would basically be asking you about, okay, well, you know, what is your training load like, um, and then what are we doing in terms of in terms of our eating and in terms of our nutrition. So I guess a really common thing that we can see is. Um, we may change what we do on a day-to-day basis with our exercise and, you know, a typical running program could be that they have a hard session Tuesday, maybe another hard one on on Saturday, um, yeah. and then they'll have some easy runs, you know, between that maybe a mid, mid-long mid run on Wednesday or so. Um, but then when you ask them about what they're doing in eating, they're not changing anything.
0: <laughs> so they're not periodizing um, their eating to their training at all.
2: No, so just like we say, periodise your training, and they can do a wonderful job at that. When we say periodise nutrition, they're like, "What's that?" Um, and and you talk through it, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, makes sense." Um, but but they don't do it, and it, and it's fair, you know, life gets busy. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a big thing that um, can hamper the you know it's. You're hampering the training adaptations that you can get, basically, and the quality that you can get out of those sessions. So, um, that's that's a big thing that I would be looking at. Um, and then, depending on who I'm working with, obviously considering if they're female or male, and then what, you know how are we going with the vitamins and minerals and those types of things. Yeah. Um. So, so looking at, I guess, your training nutrition. What are you doing leading in? What are you doing during post? Um, and then, from a race perspective, if you've got, you know, because typically, you probably, will have a goal. Hey, Steph, I want to do the Melbourne Marathon. Hopefully, fingers crossed if that yeah. happens. Um,
0: Not on a trip. And then,
2: a- <laughs> a yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> come to Alan's study, and you'll you'll get in a marathon if you run five hours.
3: Good plug. Um,
2: but you know, you want to then look at. All right. Well. You might think it's a long way away, but in actual fact, it's not. And we want to start practicing what we're wanting to do then in that race to make yeah. sure we're training the gut and getting again the performance that, that we want.
0: So yeah, that must be um, such a typical yeah. mistake that people make in terms of uh, adopting a new intervention, but not actually practicing it and understanding, um, you know, what what it's actually going to show you. My, exactly. yeah. I mean, I came unstuck with that when I did my little paddle. Challenge this year was a thirty k in in Gippsland, and I'd practiced and I'd um, practiced eating it at, at um, <laughs> sort of fifteen k's, and I could do it. But when I was actually in a race and at you know on Intensity, the edge, yeah. Oh man, I, ne- yeah. <laughs> I nearly fell in drown. Yeah,
1: but that yes. that terminology you just said then about training the gut as well to yeah. tolerate eating and running. If you only ever run sort of forty five minutes, sometimes you might think I'm never gonna need to fuel but then you push the distance and you are going to need to practice and you certainly are going to if that's your your goal race is in the hours, you know.
0: So I know the doc's got some more te- technical questions to ask but I'm, I'm curious around that and, and we should talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the typical differences between male and female athletes that people might want to consider but if someone was coming to you or, or looking to um, – you know investigate this further, what do they need to already know about what they're doing what, what's useful to to bring you mentioned, you know obviously having a sense of training but but what does that look like? Do you need a really clear sense of you know the exact nature of the of their typical training loads from a i guess like a over physiological a point of view over you know months and months is is that the sort of background data that you look for Yep.
2: I guess it, it can also come down to who you're working with as well, you know, and what their goals are and um, it could be very different if you're working with a more amateur recreational, you know, athlete compared to if you're working with an uh, elite athlete um, and a different um, yeah, training load that they have. Um, so, I mean, if typically I like to understand their training load as best as possible. So I'll, um, yeah, I'll ask them for, for that. And it could just be from through Monday to Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, and just giving me an indication of what that intensity is like and what the duration is like and what the purpose of this, of the session is, um, uh, so just, just having an estimate and, and some athletes I work with, their coaches, um, will definitely correspond with me and, yeah. you know, they might be using training peaks or, or what have you. So, um, we can use that. Um, mm. and then, uh, so, so really they just need to give me a bit of an outline of, of that. And I'll ask further questions, um, when I'm, you know, consulting Looking with them, yeah, what and do then you food is, you know, it's the same thing. Like if they can be, you know, somewhat detailed to me, um, even in cup measurements, just again so I can just have a bit of an estimate of, okay, well, what's the rough perhaps energy intake on these days and and can I see that there is a big mismatch there? Yep. Um, yeah, and and yeah, it's, it's going to depend on the individual you're working with and you, you'll learn that um, along the way and, and what way they best learn as well. Um, so, yeah, finding out, well, you know, are you a person that, that likes a lot of information and planning or are you a person where I'll educate you more and that's the better approach for you?
1: Yeah, cool. Do, are you interested in the kind of food and fuel that they like to take on their events? Because obviously runners and even paddlers, Bill, have like a strong preference towards I like this brand or I like this flavour. I've always found this, I can absorb this one, but I can't digest that one. Like do people have a strong, you know, team that they bury for in in terms of um,
2: brand? Yeah, yeah, def- I definitely want to know that because that to me is a wealth of information. Because if I'm trying to work out, okay, what are they doing with carbs, sodium, caffeine, like they will have no idea. I have a lot of people saying, oh, Steph, I take. This many sodium tablets. You look at the sodium <laughs> tablet they're taking; it's maybe got fifty milligrams, or like <laughs> you know, it's a it's a tiny amount. But they're thinking they're taking you know a, uh-huh. a, a large amount. Or well, they're saying I take a caffeine gel, and they're taking a gel that might have one hundred and fifty milligrams. They have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 definitely getting that information from them, and just also educating them about the products that they are using because obviously there can be a lot of claims that are made, there's yeah. a lot of anecdotes and and they get swept away by that.
0: And it's very hard to understand. Even even if you kind of know what you're looking for, it's it can be very misleading, can't it?
2: It's so misleading and you can make, you know, there's claims that can be made, marketing companies get away with it. Yeah. Um, so there's a really popular gel out at the moment that's that's you know got a lot of elite um, athletes promoting it, um, and there's claims made with that that it, they're not they're not scientifically based, but mm-hmm. it's being promoted by um, mm-hmm. you know these elite athletes and mm-hmm. a lot of money behind it. Um, but it's it's spending money that you probably don't need to spend. Yeah.
1: yeah um and so that's a a really good segue into people's preferences and and when they get running and they're doing their ultra trail marathon events and as we said last time often they're out in very remote places you you may you have to sustain your nutrition for the whole day you might get an aid station at some point but really you need to have enough fuel on you to to last the whole time so you're kind of really dependent on the food you've got how well your body can absorb and use it and you know avoiding at all costs, things that go wrong that muck up your absorption and hydration um, ability to keep fluids in as well. So your area of interest is exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome or runner's gut. And now that's a really common thing that we see in sports medicine as well, people saying that they get issues with their gut when they're running. Um, And in in normal medicine, we we think about all sorts of reasons why people get gut issues. And a lot of that's inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or things like um, IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. There's a lot of things that you think about. But when people go running and they get gut issues, there's a whole area of research that actually you're one of the main authors that started to talk about this stuff at Monash. Can you take us into that about exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome and how that model of thinking uh, It's evolved?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, first of all, I've got to thank my supervisor, Ricardo Costa, for, um, I guess, giving me the education in that area and, um, and helping develop that um, model further. Um, so exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, if we think of that pretty, I guess, a bit easier, when we're exercising, obviously, Um, blood's, you know, wanting to go to the muscles and and we're not getting as much to the gut. Um, So that's what we're going to – we call that – there's kind of two pathways. Um, So you've got what we call splenic hypoperfusion, so not as much blood flow going to to the gut. Yeah. Um, And in that situation, depending on the extent of the exertional stress, duration, intensity, environmental conditions – um, we can then get some injury to, to the lining of the gut. Yeah. Um, and then depending on the extent of, of that, then that can go into potentially leading to, you know, increased permeability um, in that lining of the gut. And then we can get leakage of endotoxins and um, we can get a cytokinemia response. Um, so that's kind of looking at that um, splank um, hyperperfusion pathway or we call it the circulatory pathway.
1: Yeah, so does and the then, gut get blood when you exercise? Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly, yeah. And then you've got the other pathway which is what we refer to as neuroendocrine um, and that's where obviously when we're exercising we're, we're sort of switching on more so that sympathetic drive mm. Um and then we've got those stress hormones like your cortisol um, and those things can then impact on our gut function and our, and our digestion. Um, so it's, um, you know, we when we're in this stress response, it's kind of like um, your, your body is, you know, it's trying to run away um, and it's, mm. and it's sort of shutting down things. So our di- digestion is actually not working as well. Yeah. Um, and so, with that, we can get um, a, not a, not as able to digest our foods and absorb our nutrition, um, and we can get what we call for some people gut shut down. Um, and so, those pathways um, can then lead to us experiencing gastrointestinal symptoms mm. um, and and health complications, um, and the. And I guess then the gut symptoms that can be experienced when we're running can be very much like irritable bowel um, mm. type symptoms. Um, so, you know, we can have, we kind of classify them into upper GI symptoms. Um, so that's looking at things like regurgitation or urge to regurgitate, mm-hmm. um, yeah, upper abdominal bloating, upper stomach pain. Um, and then you know your lower sort of GI symptoms looking at um, needing to go to the to the loop yeah. um, which can be quite quite common a lot of flatulence um, a lower bloating as well uh, and then we've also got other symptoms such as nausea um, dizziness and then also vomiting yeah um, so it's a, it's a range of symptoms that that can be experienced but um, the that sort of the pathway is really helpful for mm. when I get an athlete that I guess is presenting to me with symptoms, um, because then I'm trying to think: is there a, a perhaps a, a predominant pathway yeah. that's um that you know that's affecting them?
1: Yeah, that's super cool, and and I immediately think. Well, some people manage to train totally fine all the time and then they go into a race where it's important to them, like they've been looking forward to this, they want to do their best performance, and all of a sudden they get symptoms. So, you know, how important is that in terms of, you know, you've all of a sudden got an extra, is it hormones, is it cortisol, is it adrenaline? And that's that second pathway you talked about, isn't it? So
0: are you saying a person who's otherwise training... Physically in a similar way, but yeah. but get symptoms At race day on race day, yeah. driven by a different, me- you know, a less. Yeah, yeah that's I think
1: that neuroendocrine pathway, which was the second one that Steph yeah. talked about, was really important i think and I, I don't think many athletes and we come from rowing i would say a lot of athletes on on regatta day race day get gastrointestinal oh, discomfort absolutely. symptoms very
0: very much all of them judging <laughs> yeah. yeah. by the line at Lou.
2: oh bill <laughs> stop and that and you know and that's um what we've started to see more in um in our research is that it does appear to us that um, athletes that are getting these symptoms like acutely and and during exercise, it does to us appear that perhaps it is more coming from that neuroendocrine pathway. Mm. Um, And so, you know, when you've got that cortisol, if it's a substantial response um, that definitely can have an impact on, Slowing down our gut, and, our, and you know, our tolerance and our absorption just isn't going to be as, as good. Um, I think the other thing that I find with athletes as well is um, we tell them to train their gut, and they will often do it in their training, but ideally, we'd like them to do it in some less Under key pressure. races. Yeah. to be able to simulate that more. And, and when I get people to train their gut, I actually also want them to do it in some of the interval sessions or the high-intensity sessions mm-hmm. um, and or just eating before you do a hard session. So it's kind of like the opposite way that we typically tell someone to, yeah. Yeah. what to do if we're trying to prevent it. Um, so often we'll actually, like even if I had a target for someone to get a certain amount of carbohydrate, let's say, per hour, um, in the race situation, I'll potentially increase that amount to maybe 150% in the training so that we're actually really challenging the gut oh. um, and then we'll drop it down in, in the race scenario. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, Ricardo's got fantastic stories of what he used to do in his pro athlete days where he mm-hmm. um, they did a lot of, unusual things where um you know they would shove down hot dogs when they were (laughs) when they were doing sessions um now that's an extreme way of doing it but you know it's kind of just really getting in solids and and making your gut in a way feel feel uncomfortable and be distended but you don't need to go to that extent
0: yeah and i guess you know from a very logical point of view it's the same as training in any other mechanism really you're trying to you know overcompensate to a, to a degree and, and yes. ideally take it beyond that point. Now, I obviously a lot of our listeners come from a rowing background and, and one of the things that, that we often think about or talk about in rowing is it's really uncommon even in um, rowing athletes who will train perhaps twice a day for two hours at a time to take nutrition out with them. Um, it's just it's just not a thing, and a part of it is I think um, the physical position that people sit in and some some of that sort of stuff. But what's really interesting there is around training the gut for its benefit, not just so that you can um, so that you can um, eat during that training session. So it's actually f- the benefit that you might get, you know, on race day rather than than actually the benefit of uh, taking on nutrition to help you today, which I think is the mm-hmm. way most you know, rowers yeah, would look at it. I'm taking do. food out to get me through today's it's session today's more effectively, fuel. which is yeah. one part of it, but another part is um, actually training your fuel. gut to know how to cope with that in a race scenario when you've got a backup between between semi-final and mm. final at a World Cup or something like that. Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it's, yeah, I think it's working with the individual as well, you know, what have you been used to um, and then trying to work out how to make that step up um, with them as well, um, and and then look, looking at certain foods that perhaps maybe might be better tolerated for them if they do have more of a of a sensitive gut.
1: So you've you've taken um, a few different approaches looking at this particular, you know, syndrome. And I know when you do your research, you do take cortisol samples, so you're kind of looking at. Cortisol as a hormone in the saliva, but you're also looking at, you've got this really cool EEG, no, EGG. Yeah. <laughs> the gut, the <laughs> electro-gastrogram. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. And it's like measures electric action in the gut. In it's, the gut. It's really cool. Yeah, right. So they're she, they, they're very high-tech at Monash. They get to do all sorts of things. But you've looked at a few <laughs> things like the duration of running and yep. also like day versus night so I want to ask you about that first. Ultra runners sometimes have to do overnight races. So tell me the difference between how the gut works sort of at daytime versus at nighttime.
2: Mm, yeah. Um, so we, I guess, looked into that because we were getting a lot of, um, well, I was at least, and there's a lot of anecdotes of um, runners experiencing symptoms at night. And the question is, is that simply just because the, you know, they've been running for that long? Um, yeah. However, there's events that are definitely overseas. They start at midnight or 1am or 3am. Uh, I think that can sometimes depend on mountain conditions and things. You probably know better um, than me why they choose those times. Um, but I think Barkley <laughs> Marathon...
1: Barkley Marathon just starts whatever time the guy wants, doesn't it? It's like, oh, that happens. does. That's an unusual race. <laughs> he well, says but we're starting in an hour from you know, now. <laughs> in,
0: um, in Tokyo, we saw endurance events starting at you know, 6 a.m. Um, yeah, to, yes, to get yes. out of the way of the heat, and that's yeah. really yes. significantly different, but sorry to interrupt. Yes. And yeah, my, no, my experience and is
1: that, you, yep. you know, sometimes medicos, nurses, people who do shift work often have to do night shifts and you don't get to choose that. Sometimes it's just what you get yeah. given and everyone's always complaining about, oh, I've got cramps or constipation or really bad symptoms at night time. Is it because mm-hmm. your diet's flipped or is it because it's actually dark and you're not meant to be working? You're meant to be sleeping.
2: Mm-hmm yeah um so I guess yeah what we did was we found from that study we had people running from you know 9 till 9 a.m. to 12 um, noon and then we had them running from 9 p.m. till um, 12, midnight, uh, we we tried to simulate as best as possible as well in terms of what would happen in an ultra where they're running with their light. Oh, cool. uh, so we had the whole lab, it was pitch black, um, and then we were walking around with our, you okay. know, dim dim light. Uh, so that was super fun. Uh, so a lot of late nights, getting home at like three thirty four a.m., but it's, uh, what we found from that study is we did... A heap of bloods we did we measured oxidation, so carbs fats, um, we did bloods we we measured cortisol from from our bloods oh, cool. um, and we did transit um, time as well so so again, looking at how fast things are moving through the gut, and what we found was there was um, a, a substantial change in cortisol level in the evening compared to the day, and that corresponded with um, a delay in the transit, so in their gut transit time. So it, it seems that the gut is slowing down at night yeah. and we think that that is coming more from that neuroendocrine response, so a more of this um, sympathetic system. Um, and, and that was the main difference. Um, and in that study we had, I think I had two or three individuals that had projectile vomiting um oh, well. couldn't couldn't finish, um, and that was in the evening. I had one during the day uh, that maybe didn't finish the last fifteen minutes, and maybe there was some diarrhea or something there. But yeah, it was kind of got some significant symptoms um, in the in the evening. so oh, wow. that's that's kind of what we found. We didn't find any huge changes in terms of carboxidation and fat oxidation. Mm-hmm. S- nothing too significant. Um, and and in terms of injury and that circulatory pathway, they both sort of responded similarly. Um, so in terms of intestinal injury and those types of things, so it, it, the the main difference we saw was from that um, neuroendocrine response.
1: Oh, Okay, so same absorption, maybe a similar injury, but more mm-hmm. symptoms because of this neuroendocrine pathway.
2: Yeah, yeah, That's so interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah, and uh-huh. uh, and you know if the yeah. If, if the gut's not working as well, um, it's, yeah, the the fuel is not obviously getting in um, yeah. as quickly. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so they'll be feeling so pretty Absorption
1: is, mon- is, is hindered, yeah. And so the first mm.
0: thing I think about then is could you do the same sort of thing? Because this relates to travel and athletes that need to compete quickly after travel, I would think. Um, yeah, sure it does. So um, – and, and where before they've had time to adjust to a time zone. So it would be interesting to know like what what would any of the um, external stimulus differences that we might prescribe for travel adaptation make in that scenario if you if you brought that into a lab? Um, is that something that you would ever look at, do you think?
2: Sorry, my dog wa- is going <laughs> to that question for you.
0: Absolutely not.
2: You are staying right here. <laughs> Sorry, can you repeat that one for me here, um, sidetracked? Yeah,
0: so I, I, I guess what I'm thinking is um, if somebody was getting um, these, um, uh, I guess, hormonal driven um, responses at night, so there's mm-hmm. a bit more layman's terms, I suppose.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: if you did some of the things that we would prescribe in a in a sports sense for athletes that are traveling overseas to try and help them adapt um you know their circadian rhythms to a new time zone. If you yes. brought that into the lab, I wonder if you would see the same impact. You know, if you could do things like, um, you know, some of the the work with lights in the eyes and, and those sort of things, if that would um, numb or or It'd deaden the impact of the um, you know, the hormonal reaction. Yeah, be yeah. interesting, wouldn't yeah. it? And then, and therefore, if an athlete was doing something through the night, if there are things, if there are strategies they could do to um, attenuate those um, symptoms um, that are similar to the things they might do during travel.
2: The response, yeah, to see if you can change that, yeah. Um, and I guess from a nutrition perspective, for us, our kind of key message from that is with our gut training is again put yourself in that situation at nighttime. Um, so a lot of athletes won't typically practice their training at nighttime because it's
0: yeah.
2: yeah, it's not typical. I, although I do have some the dog won't that, be happy about but, it. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's then putting it, making sure that they are training their gut in in night um, as well.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, your question on flights, Bill, because things happen when you're in the air too. Like you have a um, pressure changes in all sorts yeah, of body cavities. Yes. So there's lots of
0: yeah, it's very complicated. Isn't that it? happens after people have been Speak on Speak for yourself. Good lord. Oh. <laughs>
1: Look, I just wanted to maybe go back to um, talking about your actual area of interest. So tell me about running because, um, like, that's a different stress on the body than, say, cycling is as a sitting down sport or rowing. So do people have yeah. more symptoms when they run
2: versus when they ride? Yeah, uh, typically, yes. Um, so we, we still, you'll still get cyclists report symptoms and, again, it can be that posture and maybe their bike setup as well. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, when you look at a, a triathlon, th- there does tend to be more of an increased incidence of symptoms on the run leg. Yeah. Um, but, but it can happen on the bike. But, I mean, the bike's normally sort of that rolling buffet. They take advantage <laughs> of getting in their food <laughs> and then... Um, and then the run leg is um, where trouble can happen. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is more common um, with the running and um, that's probably because of the mechanical vibration and jostling that occurs with the, the GI system. Um, yeah, it's definitely more common in running. And then I think if, if you look at the factors that, that can contribute to symptoms, um Gut symptoms can be reported in team and power sports. Typically the incidence less than about ten percent or so. Then when and even in marathon running, it's it's looking at around ten percent. Um, then when you step it up to ultra endurance exercise, we're looking at um, consistently sixty percent or more. Gee, and that's those symptoms can be severe where it's resulting in DNS. Um, so yeah.
0: and these- so it's yeah. These would be people that otherwise wouldn't ever have these symptoms, a lot of them.
2: Exactly. No day-to-day symptoms, no issue. Uh, and that's people that do our research. There's no, no GI conditions that have been diagnosed. Yeah. There's no day-to-day symptoms, but it's symptoms that are occurring during exercise and mostly the vomiting and nausea appears to occur from about four hours of onset of exercise. Symptoms to occur, we do need to have a reasonable amount of exertional stress as well. So even from a research perspective, we want to make sure that if we're looking at, uh, let's say, nutritional supplements and people are looking at, I don't know, glutamine, probiotics and and whatever else, um, and they're, they're looking at damage, we need to make sure that that exercise stress that they've implemented is significant enough to actually get the changes that we would get in that scenario.
1: Yeah. Um, So what are the things that you can do to increase stress on someone in the lab? So, rather than just make them run longer, what can you do to make things tougher?
2: Crank up the heat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did that to you, remember?
1: <laughs> yeah, and how do you measure the heat of the athlete? <laughs> how do
2: oh all... yes, uh, all
1: right. Oh, you well, you're talking
0: about the probe, are you?
1: Continuous heat monitoring. <laughs> <in that
2: place>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the proper science it, at Monash. <laughs> yeah. It's written in, like, really small writing. Um, but it's got it there. So when they come and they act all surprised, it's in the consent form.
0: <laughs> you willingly sign to did. this. We
2: signed our life
0: away. So, yes. um, so you crank the heat up. Yep. What? Uh, and obviously, this is not something that you would adv- advise people to do um, on their own without any kind of um, supervision yeah. or um, education. But heat training is is obviously a very common thing now in endurance um, preparation. Full stop. Mm. What are, what are we talking about? Like how how hot yeah. and how humid were you?
2: Yeah, we're getting it, yeah. Humidity we don't um, have very high in our, in our lab. We're, our lab, we kind of uh, maybe more, we don't have a heap of money to be able to spend. So we get quite creative. Um, so our lab, we do not have a chamber. Um, we have tent. Um, so we get to pitch up the tent and we have our heaters cranking. We we will have the t- um, the temperature at thirty five degrees, yeah. um, and the humidity could range anywhere from twenty to forty percent. Yeah. Um. So it's it's not huge. Um. And what we've found in our research is that we typically need to have either two hours um, running at sixty percent of the VO two in 35 degree heat or we have them running at three hours in ambient conditions, running at 60%. So um, they, that was in my, we found in my circadian study, they were running for three hours and that was in ambient temp, and we saw a significant amount of intestinal injury. And when we're saying significant, it lines up to the level that people with IBD and gut conditions can experience. So right. it's a it's a ch- yeah, a change of about mm. a thousand um, picograms per meal. Um, so again, when we read research, we're really careful of reading what's actually significant because people can interpret that um, very differently. Mm. So yeah, right. that's that's the environment that that we use. Mm. Um,
1: Yep. We're going to link in a couple of the papers as well from your lab, but I think if um, sports scientists are doing some heat training and you've got athletes with gastrointestinal symptoms, it would be really interesting to have a really good read. Obviously, don't just experiment you know, without understanding the science, but I'm sure they'll be happy if you get in contact with you, Steph, as well but it could be a good time to challenge the gut as well if you are doing heat training sessions. Mm,
0: yeah, that's fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah, and we normally like to, with the lovely rectal probe, um, we have tried to use capsules, but they're not, no. what we need to get is the temperature in a certain part of the, the small intestine. Um, so we usually like to get that temperature at about 39 degrees.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep.
2: to be able to see the the changes occurring.
1: Yeah, so you've got to add it, you're going to significantly stress the athlete. But I mean, if they're unsupervised doing heat training, you don't know what the athlete is, and that's yeah. not a good experiment. So you need no. you need to be doing this supervised. Yeah,
0: that's why we have experts doing it.
1: Exactly. Yeah, um, that's super interesting. So there's a there's a, a lot of people know Monash University for the work they do in in IBS as well. So malabsorption or, or issues mm. with different kinds of intolerance to certain types of foods. Um, is mm. that something that you're still involved with researching?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's, I guess, how I started my uh, dietetic career was I, um, yeah, moved up to Melbourne and, and worked with the Monash FODMAP group. Um, so my first in my honours uh, year, my study was looking at manipulating the diet, so doing a 24-hour low FODMAP or high FODMAP diet prior to um, to running. Um, so, again, that was looking in individuals that don't have any day-to-day symptoms but experience symptoms during exercise. Um, and, again, that sort of started because runners report IBS-like symptoms And so we wanted to see, well, you know, do FODMAPs potentially affect them? And if you think about an athlete's diet, particularly an endurance athlete's diet, it can be quite high in carbohydrate and really high in foods um, that contain these FODMAPs. Mm. Um, So an average uh, diet for adults, their FODMAP intake is about 25 grams a day. For athletes the we had, the participants can easily get up to about 50 grams of FODMAPs a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fibre intake is huge. Fibre intake can be 40 to 50 grams. But what we found is by just manipulating the FODMAP intake um, from going from high to low, keeping the fibre intake still high, um, we found that we reduced the severity of gut symptoms. So incidence was still the same. That the severity of gut symptoms was very much reduced on that low fodmap diet, and we found we only needed to do that 24 hours prior.
1: That's cool. Yeah, yeah
2: that's I interesting. think
1: fibre is so important for you know long term gut health. So if you want to be an athlete for a long time, decades and decades, and you decide fibre is the way. Fibre is what you need to cut out it's it's not always the answer yeah so yes that's a really good comment but i also think yeah. you know
0: a lot of people would be scared off uh, not scared off but the idea of having to go into a fodmap um, yes. diet yes. S- scenario yes. as a lifestyle change <laughs> i couldn't do it
3: you couldn't uh, i would i would, I would give up my know, uh, 5k no, runs
0: <laughs> but but you live to for garlic <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> but if we, if if the, you know, I think a, a lot of people would find that quite revealing that actually, um, you know, you, you have to obviously train the gut to be able to operate like this, but to effectively do it, it could be a almost a race. It's like a race, a race day, a yeah. true, you know, if it's 24 hours, it's the day of sort of thing. Um, mm. You know, that that's, that's not a big uh, lifestyle sacrifice, let's face it. it, it-
2: It's not a big lifestyle sacrifice and I think also the reason we wanted to do that was because when you follow a low FODMAP diet, we already know for people with IBS that we never want them to follow it forever because we do know that there can be some changes in the gut and particularly in terms of types of bacteria and we actually found in our study, even though it was only 24 hours um, following the low fodmap diet, it appeared to change the the gut bacteria to to a the direction that we perhaps don't think is ideal. Mm. Um, however, if we're only doing that for twenty four hours, you know, we know that when we change our diet, our bacteria and our type of um, gut bacteria can change very quickly. Mm. Um, but the the point there is, we don't want you to do that for lifelong. Mm. Um, it's really about assessing well when a the symptoms happening for that individual, and and also first of all, do fodmaps actually have a role? So again, yeah. we want to first get that objective data to find that out, um, and and try and move away from a trial and error approach, um, because maybe they don't need to do that. Maybe it's got something to do with the thermoreg, you know, or um, it's yeah, it's something entirely different. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's really trying to look at look at that first.
1: Yeah, and, and not making wholesale, you know, dietary lifestyle changes before you've thought about all of the pathways that you've gone through today with us. It, it's not only gonna be FODMAPs and so it's important for clinicians to know that too, because quite often we will say ibs need fodmap testing but it's actually thinking about all of the history stuff about what's the event what's the preparation what are the stresses and then you know accessing someone like you or at least reading your papers would be great yeah that's really great steph thank you for taking us through those sort of different pathways that's excellent pleasure
0: now, on a little uh, side note, one of the things that I that we were playing around with over summer was um, the continuous glucose monitoring um, huh. uh, little devices. Now, I I was provided a Doobie Whacker and uh, played with it and was fascinated by it but I know that you know in terms of what it's actually measuring it's not not completely clear now I absolutely saw some patterns but that's you know a little bit of an n equals one what, mm. what can you tell us about those um devices because they're, they're now readily available and relatively cheap and that's changed in the last 12 months realistically so you know yeah. we're, we're going to see more and more people playing with it um yep. what's your impressions of the utility I suppose
2: yeah, yeah. I know it's getting a lot of um, public interest, and I think I saw—I don't know how long ago—Kip um, allude Kip Chog, who's broke the two hour. He's, I think, he's kind of promoting it as well. Um, so um, I, I knew this question was coming. Because uh, I <laughs> asked so, you in the lab, yeah. I was like, I don't know about
1: this because I see different data than you see when I've tried it out. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I, do. I just don't yeah. know like how relevant or helpful it would be for an athlete. I think it is interesting, but whether it's measuring you know actual muscle glucose. Yeah. do we know that's what it's what actually I measuring? Yeah.
2: Well, it's measuring. Um, from what I understand, it's the, the glucose that's being measured is the glucose in the interstitial fluid. Yeah. Um. So it's a little bit different, but then some argue that maybe that's more relevant for for athletes. Um but, but it is measuring, yeah, I think it is it is a bit different from from um, obviously your blood glucose. Um, and then the thing is there's such a huge range of factors that impact on your blood glucose levels. So uh, there's a key thing in terms of if you get one of those devices, you want to be really clear on well what's your actual goals of, of using that. Um, what do I want to know? Do I want to see if I feel my my sessions better, that I'm performing better? Um, Do I just want to see, you know, my day-to-day glucose levels and, you know, if I'm getting tempted by a lot of dried fruit at night, what that may be doing to my blood glucose levels? Um, And and maybe that makes you more aware um, of some choices. Mm. Um, But we know that, you know, sleep, stress, um, exercise will affect it as well. So, you know, obviously, when you're exercising, your blood glucose levels are going to be much higher than when you're having a rest day. Mm. And so, I know with those monitors, then it could can tell you things like what your average reading is. That that average reading could be put out of whack because it's factoring in your exercise. exercise so you just yeah. need to be aware of that. So you kind of want to do have like a control there. So sort of keep your diet, you know, controlled and then um, see what happens in those situations and then have a look at what's happening in training. And then as a training situation, if you're wanting to see how your body responds to certain fuel, perhaps what you do is you do a session where maybe you're not fueling and then you do a session where perhaps you get 40 grams of carbs an hour. Mm -hmm. Then you do a session where you're doing 60 and then you have a look at, well, have you noticed anything in power or performance? So, Mm I think there's potential there. I think there's still a lot of research we want to know. Mm. And then I think at the same time, it's not necessarily the thing that drives performance either. So I know there was a, I'm trying to have a look at this paper. There was a paper by a team, um, Stuart Galloway. um, Mm. I think they're in London somewhere. And they looked at it from, I think, a 24-hour ultra race. um, And they found that, the performance was more correlated with the carbohydrate ingestion versus any direct Mm. um, relationship with the blood glucose levels. So I think it's just about trying to be clear of what you're using it for and um, I think trying to understand it a bit bit more would be my advice.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I found it – it's educating. Um, And you know when you say about making sure you train the way that you may end up racing – You know, one, I I went for a run, drove my car to a national park. I I shoved in some breakfast just before we started running. And, of course, I had the thing on and, you know, you looked – I didn't look during the run but afterwards I had a look at my phone. I felt so terrible for the first 20 minutes of that run – But it's because after I'd had the glucose, had the big spike, and then I must have dumped a whole lot of insulin in, and I ended up having a really big low for the first part of my run. So I was actually running on really low blood sugar, but I'd just eaten. So I wouldn't have known that unless I had... The glucose monitor on and so i felt really yes. terrible for the first 20 minutes and i thought gee i'm really unfit and then all of a sudden your blood glucose levels out and you know you're actually good for the rest of the run and i had enough fuel in me um until i was you know topping up but i thought that yes. that was an education piece i actually didn't realize that i'd plummeted my blood sugar with my insulin straight away
2: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> And that's it. And I think it, that's the thing for athletes is that it can just be that kind of, yeah, good education tool. I think it could be great as long as they've got a bit of that education
0: yeah. behind it as well. It needs to be supported with knowledge, yeah, that's for does. sure. So, um, yeah.
2: yeah,
1: you know, then if you're in the middle of an ultra and you're doing your fueling strategy and you eat food and you immediately don't feel good, well, you know, that's mm. part of your blood sugars evening themselves out. So it's a chronic fueling picture, I guess, is yeah,
0: as and well. it's it's one yeah. it's one I imagine one piece of data as well yep. potentially. Yeah. yeah, and and yeah. I was a little bit the same, you know. I because I you know I'm the world's worst athlete, but I measure absolutely everything in every possible <laughs> way. So I go out with ten devices on, and I could line <laughs> I could line stuff up in hit sessions. And when I was planning for that long um, surf ski race, I did plan my fueling, utilizing it, and I felt like it helped me. But what the biggest thing that I took out of it was when I was um, and you know i I normally fast through the morning and don't eat until after lunch during the day as a personal strategy to eat less through the day (laughs) because i don't feel hungry in the morning and um so what i noticed was what i ate at lunchtime had the most profound impact on whatever it was that that device was measuring if i ate something that was um high gi Versus low GI, the high GI, my um, whatever that was measuring in, in my blood sh- uh, glucose yeah. levels was all over the place for the whole afternoon, up and down like a yo-yo. Whereas yeah. if it was a you know low GI, even if it was like li- literally going from white rice to brown rice or yeah. quinoa, or something like that, it was the difference was profound. And I just thought, oh, geez, mm. that is interesting from <laughs> a health <laughs> perspective. <laughs> anyway, quite
2: yeah. And I think even like and that's the thing, isn't it? It's like sometimes like we know this stuff sometimes, but it's just seeing it, it kind yeah. of and it's just constantly it in is. your face. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it can it can be well used and I think they're getting more and more popular. There's even um, you know, like when we measure the oxidation levels for carbohydrate and, and fat I've I've seen that there's now contraptions out there that are meant to be able to do that, but I don't know the, the reliability. So maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean down the crack for sure there's 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 so much and there's probably gonna be a thing that we can use to measure people's body temperature without having to use a (laughs) rectal probe.
0: (laughs) Good news. It's going to significantly increase the uptake of uh, participants in your upcoming, forthcoming <laughs> testing Steph.
1: But for our upcoming trial races, if someone looks like they're hypo, then I'm still going to take their blood sugar because I'm not sure if we can validate their, you know, Unknown yes. brands, um, no, continuous no.
0: glucose oh, patch on their shoulder. Well, yeah. that's you're not you're not going to take their um, you're not going to take their, uh, their heart, rate heart rate off rate. their Garmin no. either. So yeah, um, yeah, we'll take our not, own. There's anything wrong with Garmin? I, I have uh, several.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well,
0: we might um, take a quick break and come back with some wrap-up thoughts. So I feel like we did cover quite a lot of ground, but there's so much to cover there. And, um, you know, even just talking about gut bacteria, I feel like that's a whole, that's a whole thing we could talk about forever, but um, maybe another time. Um, Dr. Mack, um, any wrap-up thoughts that you've got?
1: Um, yeah, so a wealth of knowledge. And, um, Steph, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I, I think we see a lot of runners looking good when they run past us, um, out on the, on the track, but we see a lot who don't look good. So this is a really great topic and it helps you understand sort of the multiple reasons why that someone might not feel wonderful in their gut. There's lots of different pathways and, and each, the takeaway for me that, that Steph's told us is that the gut's like an organ that you need to train just as well as the muscles and the heart and yeah. you need to – your gut's part of your race strategy so you need to be able to take in fluid and fuel and and use it during the race. And, so and if you train haven't it, trained it, don't expect it to just know what to do.
0: Train it the way we train the heart and the mind as well. And yeah, it's exactly the same. It's a great takeaway. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and I you know from my point of view just the complexity of things that need to be considered and why it's important and th- that people know that there are you know experts in the field and opportunities to look at these things and then they're not necessarily things you just have to learn to live with and deal with that there are many strategies that you might need to think about playing around with um, and hopefully some of our listeners um, who who might might have not known where to ask a question beforehand might now have a little bit of a hint or a thread they can follow up
3: yeah,
1: certainly.
0: Steph, it's been fantastic to have you. What What's next on the cards for you? What's coming up either running-wise or research-wise?
2: Um, research-wise, uh, research so just, yeah, trying to finish off our exercise gut. Um, duration study so shout out to anyone that wants to um, come and and visit us and learn about how their gut is functioning and how they respond to exercise Um, we need two more females and and one more male
0: surely Um, we can uh, round them up surely
2: (laughs) (laughs) just um, and they're not we're not looking you know anywhere from recreational to high level Um, that would be awesome. Uh, so just tying up that, that study and, um, and then have to finish off writing up my thesis and we are also looking at the, the impact of, um, FODMAP and, and gut bacteria. So we've got some abstracts and things like that in, in the pipeline. So, um, I do get to go to the lab and, um, mix up slurries uh, to find out <laughs> what's happening in the bacteria.
0: <laughs> that you is a glamorous job.
2: job. <laughs> I get a lot of unique experiences in my work. I bet you do.
0: And are you going to be on the trails anytime soon?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping to. I've, I've just had a little bit of a, a niggle, so um, yeah, definitely whenever I can, I'm getting out, and I, I usually get out with my dog Cooper, and he loves the trails. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah
0: definitely. Uh, they're amazing those fur babies. Well, it's been great having you on, Steph. Thank you very much. Um, dr mac we're back uh, in a few weeks with our final episode in the uh, in the three series around endurance medicine with deb sharp it'll be yeah, very it'll exciting be fantastic.
1: thank you very much steph and um yeah hope everyone enjoys
2: thank you guys thanks for having me
0: good on you